Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me today for a bonus of an episode, pulling a recent one out of the Patreon vault. We're going to take a little excursion today to Clarendon Court, the Newport, Rhode Island home of Sonny and Klaus and all of its history before and after the Von Bulos. This gem posted to Patreon a few weeks ago, but it is filled with delightful tidbits and all the spider webs too. Before we begin today's bonus episode, I do have a spyglass here filled with the newest investigators to join me over at patreon.com slash done and done for ad-free and early episodes and not done yet bonus episodes just like this one. Huge thanks to Nissa Joy, Catherine A., Beth, Maria, Catherine K., Christina E., and Julie D. Really, really grateful to all of you and our entire Patreon family. We are currently working through our Newport, Rhode Island tour over there. I dropped Ruggles Avenue last week and will be continuing on our journey this week. Patreon folks, stay tuned for another bonus coming this week for you. Next week on Done and Done, we will be coming back with the crimes of Klaus von Bülow and the trials. But before that, today, a little bit of a bonus, we're going to celebrate one of my very favorite Scorpios, Princess Grace of Monaco, who will film her very last movie, High Society, at Clarendon Court. If you are a Princess Grace fan, be sure to check out Trashy Royals this week. Princess Grace is very big in my world this week. And she was big in Dominic Dunn's world, too. This is Dominic Dunn writing from I've Been to a Marvelous Party in Vanity Fair from March 2014. I attended my first Oscar party at Romanoff's in 1955, two years before I moved to Hollywood. The Governor's Ball, which is given on Oscar night by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, didn't begin until three years later in 1958. Grace Kelly won the Best Actress Award in 1955 for her performance in The Country Girl opposite Bing Crosby. Grace, whom I had known when she was starting out as an actress in New York and I was a television stage manager, was one of the greatest beauties in the history of the movies. She looked ravishing that night in a beautiful ice-blue evening gown by Paramount costume designer Edith Head. Grace walked through the throng of actors, directors, and producers at Romanoff's, kissing friends and never imagining that she was about to end her spectacular career. A month later, she would meet Prince Rainier of Monaco at the Cannes Film Festival. After completing The Swan and High Society, she would leave Hollywood forever to reign with him as Princess Grace. I do have one more delicious bit here from Dominic Dunn. This is from The Way We Lived Then. A little bit about his relationship with Princess Grace and that first time out in Hollywood. Dunn writes, Word got around that I was a good stage manager, and I began to be requested when certain film stars made their television debuts. I stage-managed Ginger Rogers in Noel Coward's Tonight at 8.30, and Frank Sinatra in Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Heusen's musical version of Thornton Wilder's Our Town, which also starred Paul Newman 
and Eva Marie Saint. The best, though, was Humphrey Bogart, who was repeating his famous movie role of Duke Mantee in The Petrified Forest with Henry Fonda and Lauren Bacall. NBC sent me out to Hollywood and put me up at the Beverly Hills Hotel. I had never been in a hotel as glamorous as the Beverly Hills Hotel. I was in heaven. Howard Hughes was living in one of the bungalows, and guards were stationed outside. I must have walked past the bungalow a thousand times, hoping to get a glimpse of Jane Greer or Ginger Rogers or Lana Turner or Gene Peters sneaking in and out, but I never did. Movie moguls had meetings at breakfast in the polo lounge. I quickly discovered that the coffee shop downstairs was where you saw the really important people having breakfast and reading the Hollywood trade papers. The waitresses all had red hair and wore pink uniforms and knew the names of all the customers. And the customers knew the names of the waitresses. Catherine Hepburn, whose family lived around the corner from my family in West Hartford, played tennis at the hotel with Pancho Gonzalez. Jack Benny's daughter Joan got married there, and every star in Hollywood was at the reception. I went to Mass at the Good Shepherd Church in Beverly Hills and ran into Grace Kelly, whom I knew from my Robert Montgomery days. She was almost, but not quite famous yet. She was making Dial M for Murder at Warner Brothers, and Magambo, the picture that made her a star, hadn't opened yet. She asked me if I'd take her to the premiere of the bandwagon, which the studio wanted her to go to. She wasn't yet recognized by the fans in the bleachers, but I was ecstatic. It was my first premiere. Oh, I do adore all the spiderwebs in this world of Dominic Dunn. Today, it is to Clarendon Court and a bit of an estate tour through time. So many people, so many delicious stories, just in this one Newport, Rhode Island home. Let's investigate. Hey, 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 investigators, Alicia here. I am not done yet. Oh, talking about Newport, Rhode Island. We have arrived here on our Newport tour, strolling down Bellevue Avenue, southward down to Bailey's Beach at the very end of Bellevue Avenue. We've made it through the first block, our big seven homes. Now we're taking a little detour into our next home on Bellevue, Clarendon Court. Clarendon Court, the home of the crimes, plural, of Klaus von Bülow. Clarendon Court is located at 626 Bellevue Avenue. This is prime real estate. You're right down from all those Astors, all the Vanderbilts. Like, these are your neighbors. This is big stuff. When we talk about many of the homes on Bellevue Avenue and, you know, in Newport, being on Bellevue Avenue now being museums, open to the public, owned by the Preservation Society. Clarendon Court is one home that is still in private hands. Clarendon Court is a big home, big history, big reputation. Let's get into it. 
Clarendon Court was built by a guy named Edward Collins Knight Jr. of Philadelphia, Eddie Jr. There's going to be an Eddie Jr. and an Eddie Sr. in this story, so let's just set it up that way. Eddie Jr.'s daddy, Eddie Sr., makes a ton of money owning a sugar refinery before moving his business dealings into profits (laughs) because Daddy Sr. sits on a number of boards of railroad and coal and steamship companies. Eddie Jr. does not have his father's business instincts. Eddie Jr. will follow his father into the business, but Eddie Jr. is like an amateur artist. He's pretty good. He likes to do other stuff. Also, Eddie Jr. is great at spending Eddie Sr.'s money. Edward Collins Knight Jr. will get married. He marries, Eddie Jr., marries a lady named Clara Waterman Dwight in 1866. Eddie Jr. and Clara have a daughter the following year. Her name is Clara, too, so Clara Jr., so to speak. Now, Eddie Sr. Collins dies in 1892, leaving son Eddie Jr. a lot of cash. Uh, It's probably time to build a home in Newport. Eddie Jr. is going to go and buy his very first acre of property on Bellevue Avenue from William Collins Whitney (laughs) for $40,000. William Collins Whitney we have talked about. Remember, he's the U.S. Navy Secretary under Grover Cleveland. He's also a member of Skull and Bones. Old William Collins Whitney was married to Flora Payne. They have five kids. We talked about some of those kids as they marry into other people within that Vanderbilt series that we've done on Done and Done. So here Eddie Jr. has an acre, has the land, 40K for an acre on Bellevue. So he is going to call up, who else? Horace Trumbauer. The year is 1903, and he's like, hey, Horace, I would like you to build my family a little summer cottage. The home was finished in 1904, and it was originally named Clara Dunn Court for Eddie Jr.'s wife, Clara. There was no Clarendon Court. It was Clara Dunn Court. Clara Dunn Court, pretty big home. It comes in right under 12,000 square feet, 11,878 square feet or something insane. It's enormous. Clarendon Court is completed with 20 rooms in its original version. It has been expanded and stuff. Hold on for that. But kind of interesting here in this original version, Clarendon Court is the only English home in America or was at that time. Let me tell you how this shakes down. Clarendon Court is a replica of an 18th century mansion called Hedworth House. This is located in Durham. Horace Trumbauer, y'all, it's just amazing, the spiderwebs. Horace Trumbauer finds this design for this home in this old book. And the old book was a bunch of designs by this guy named Colin Campbell. Colin Campbell was a noted Scottish architect from the like early 18th century. Colin Campbell is descended from the Campbells of... Huh, Cawdor Castle, as we're coming into uh, my favorite Shakespearean time of the season, 
Perhaps you know about the Thane of Cod, or otherwise known as Mac B. I don't even want to say the name out loud. I can't risk any uh, issues with my laptop. That Scottish king, boil, boil, toil, and trouble. Colin Campbell descended from <sighs> Mac B's line, who designs this home back in the 17th century that Horace Trumbauer's like, yeah. I think I'm going to recreate Hedworth House here in Newport, Rhode Island. Wow. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. Can't even handle it, y'all. Don't probably know how intense my love is for Mac B. I love that play. Okay, back to Horace Trumbauer and Clara Duncourt. Trumbauer falls in love with the home's design. Hedworth House, he loves it. And he sets about making this English relic come alive on Bellevue Avenue. Huzzah! But Eddie Jr. and Clara, they only have that one acre of land. For now. Holy cat, y'all. There's another home next door by the year 1910 that is on offer. This little home, its summer cottage, and its land of 6.2 acres is called Reef Point. Reef Point. We've heard about before, but let me go ahead and blow in a little reminder here. Reef Point. This one was built for Antonio Isnaga Deval. We know that name. Antonio and his wife, Ellen Maria Clement, build Reef Point. It's an Italian ant mansion on 6.2 acres. It has the finest views in all of Newport. Reef Point is built in 1864. Antonio was a Cuban merchant, and while in Cuba or in New York City doing his trading things, his family, the Isnagas, live at mostly Ravenswood Plantation in Louisiana. You know what's coming. Antonio and Ellen Maria's oldest daughter is... Consuelo. The spiderwebs in this are just mind-blowing, right? Consuelo is Naga. Consuelo is Naga, who was besties with Alva Vanderbilt growing up. Consuelo is Naga, who will go on to become the eighth Duchess of Manchester. Remember that Antonio and Ellen Maria's son, Fernando, will marry Alva Vanderbilt's sister, and be BFFs with William Kassam Vanderbilt, Alva's first husband. It is also connected. Go back to episode 80 for the main history on Consuelo Isnaga. Reef Point is the home in question here, enjoyed by the Isnaga family for a long time, I mean, ish, 1864 until the mid-1870s, when Harry Ingersoll and his wife, Sarah, both of Philadelphia, by Reef Point. They do a lot of improvements to the home. The Ingersoll's summer here for about 10 years until Harry Ingersoll passes away. Sarah will pass away in 1892, in which Sarah's heirs sell the home to another prominent Philadelphia native. This guy's name is Robert Niedermark Carson. He is a self-made street railway magnate who will also go on to endow the Carson Valley School. Old Robert Niedermark Carson, (laughs) sad for him, passes away of a heart attack (laughs) as the curtain of the last act of The Merry Widow 
is playing at the Chestnut Street Opera House in Philadelphia. Robert Niedermark Carson has a widow now who by 1910, two years before she passes away, this is where it comes back around, sells Reef Point, the Isnaga home, and that 6.2 acres of land to Edward Collins Knight Jr. Eddie Jr. now has Reef Point home and land, which butts up to his one acre that Clara Duncourt stands on. So, Reef Point is not in bad shape. It was built in 1864. It had a bunch of renos in the 1880s, 1890s. Like, the home is really fine. But Eddie Jr. did not buy Reef Point for the home. Eddie Jr. wanted that land. He wanted the 6.2 acres that Reef Point sat on. Who needs a home when he has Clarendon Court and instead can expand his views of his show palace that's already built? So, Eddie Jr. is going to demolish the Isnaga home of Reef Point. He will build more staff quarters and cottages. The swimming pool comes in at this time. But the main thing that Eddie Jr. gets to do here is create rolling lawns that go all the way down to the bay. There is not a prettier place in Newport, Rhode Island than now Clarendon Court. It is gorge because of this Reef Point acquisition that Eddie Jr. Collins does. If you are in Newport, you cannot, of course, go see Reef Point. That's gone. But you can find the location of the original home if you head on down to Isnaga Avenue. Isnaga Avenue was cut in as a reminder of where the home was, named for the Isnaga family. Kind of nice, that little Isnaga tie-in. Okay, so back to Clara Duncourt. The same year of this demolition on Reef Point, 1910, Clara Knight dies, passes away. This would be Clara Sr. Eddie Jr. Collins is now going to move to another Newport home. This one's called Stony Brook. He will also acquire himself a younger wife. Clarendon Court is now given to Eddie Jr. and Clara Sr.'s daughter, Clara Jr., for our purposes, remember her. Holy cats. Clara Waterman Knight and her descendants will live in the home from 1910 until 1929. That neighboring reef point is gone. Rolling lawns, hills, ocean view, bunch of new stuff. Clara Jr. <sighs> she is going to marry first to this guy named Sidney Colford, and that marriage was terrible. It goes bust in 1920 when Clara Jr. is going to take off for the French Riviera with her two daughters. The thing that causes a lot of scandal in New York City is when Clara Jr. announces, well, doesn't even announce, just gets married <laughs> for the second time to this guy named Francis Hunter Potter. Put more three wasp names together, Francis Hunter Potter. Clara Jr. and Francis Hunter Potter get married in Nice in 1921. But the scandal thing here for Clara Jr. is there is no announcement. There's no announcement of an engagement. It's just, hey, here's my press. I got married again. Suck it. 
It's just a few years after this, 1924, that Clara Jr. passes away. Clara Jr.'s daughters keep the home until 1929, when the daughters sell Clara Duncourt to a guy named Harry S. Black of New York City. Harry S. Black and his story are utterly fascinating. I have done a bunch of research saving that on the back end, but for the need-to-know basis for this episode, Harry S. Black was a big-time property developer in New York City. Henry S. Black brings us so many landmarks that we see in New York that are just iconic to this day. The Flatiron Building, the Plaza. I do want to hold on to his history because I don't want to lose myself here. Harry S. Black will own this home for one year, 1929. Sadly, Harry commits suicide in 1930, but not before leasing the home for a year to Robert Kelso Cassatt and his wife, Minnie Drexel Fell, also from Philadelphia. They enjoy the home for a summer. However, 1930, Harry S. Black is dead. And the home will pass to new owners now as Clara Duncourt is sold by his estate. Holy cats. Okay, new owner of Clara Duncourt. About to be Clarendon Court, this lady, Maisie Caldwell. Oh, her story. Maisie Caldwell, in 1930, when she buys Clara Duncourt, she's married to her third husband. His name is... William Hayward. Oh my God. William Hayward is the father of Leland Hayward, the grandfather of Brooke Hayward. Brooke Hayward's mother being Margaret Sullivan, all connecting into our Dun and Dun universe. Brooke Hayward and Lenny Dunn, Dominic's wife, were fantastic friends. We've talked about Brooke Hayward and Dennis Hopper and Leland too, connecting it all together. Remember Leland Hayward? His second marriage was to actress Margaret Sullivan. Leland Hayward's third marriage was to Slim Keith of our infamous Swan fame. His last marriage, oh Leland, was to Pamela Harriman. Holy cats. Leland Hayward actually marries Margaret Sullivan at Clarendon Court in 1936. As soon as Maisie Caldwell, May Caldwell, Maisie Caldwell, gets her hands on the home, she wants to make it her own. And she will rename the home from its original Clara Dunn to Clarendon. It's a little bit more posh and English sounding. Let's go ahead and <laughs> spend a few minutes on Maisie Codwell. Maisie or May Codwell, good Lord, was married a total of four times. Her first marriage was to a guy named Selden Manwaring. They divorced in 1914. One month later, after that divorce, Maisie's going to get her second husband. This guy's name is Morton Freeman Plant. He is a railroad and steamship magnate. Old Morton was also the Commodore of the New York Yacht Club. This would be after the time of Gordon Bennett. It is in this marriage with Maisie and Morton that, oh God, Maisie Caldwell is going to make history in a really unexpected way. I'm taking this next bit from Ephemeral New York, talking about this 
particular incident in history. In 1905, Fifth Avenue gained a new mansion. Businessman and baseball team owner Morton F. Plant, the son of a railroad steamship and hotel baron, commissioned a marble and limestone showstopper at the southeast corner of 52nd Street. When Plant moved into the five-story Italian Renaissance-inspired mansion facing 52nd Street with his first wife, Nellie, he should have felt satisfied with his decision to build it here. After all, his neighbors were among the wealthiest New Yorkers, including several Vanderbilts who occupied their own mansions across the street. Plant bought the land from William K. Vanderbilt. Previously, it was the site of an orphan asylum. Within a few years, though, Plant apparently realized he made a mistake. An increasing number of businesses were creeping up to his stretch of Fifth Avenue, like the St. Regis Hotel and Gotham Hotels at 55th Street, ruining the exclusive residential vibe. (laughs) One of those new Fifth Avenue businesses was the American outpost for Cartier, the French jewelers. In 1909, Pierre Cartier launched his first store at 712 Fifth Avenue near 56th Street. Business was good for Cartier, which organized workshops in the city to meet demand for their jewelry. Selling the Hope Diamond in 1910 also helped from a public relations standpoint, raising the jeweler's Manhattan profile. But back to Morton Plant and his mansion, which was increasingly out of character on a more commercialized Fifth Avenue. In 1914, Morton remarried a much younger woman, Maisie. This is Maisie Caldwell. The two found themselves left behind as neighbors moved away and businesses replaced them. There is a 2019 Bloomberg article by a guy named Jack Forster that is, I'm about to quote here, uh, writes Forrester, by 1917, life on Fifth Avenue and 52nd Street had long since become untenable for plant. The ongoing encroachment of businesses, combined with the removal of virtually all families who'd once colonized the avenue below Central Park, two new addresses north of 59th Street, had left the plants isolated, both physically and socially. Plant had already begun work the year before on a new and even bigger residence on 86th Street and 5th Avenue. Paying for two 5th Avenue mansions, however, was quite costly, even for a scion of wealth. But then, here we go, here we go, Maisie caught a look at a Cartier pearl necklace. Jack Forster writes, It's really two necklaces, a double strand of enormous natural South Sea pearls. The smaller is a strand of 55 pearls and the larger of 73. The necklaces value $1 million. From a 2016 article by Business Insider, when Maisie Plant fell in love with the natural oriental pearl necklace, Pierre Cartier sensed an opportunity. Pierre, the savvy businessman, proposed the deal of a lifetime. He offered to trade the double-strand necklace of the rare pearls 
and $100 for the plant's New York City home. This home was assessed at $925,000. In July 1917, an article appeared in the Real Estate Record and Guide announcing the sale of the plant mansion on 52nd Street to Cartier for $100 and other valuable considerations. It's an unusual deal, but definitely a win-win. Plant unloaded his first mansion by trading it in to Cartier for a necklace his wife desired and then moved uptown in a more luxurious house on the city's new millionaire's mile. Cartier has occupied Plant's mansion on 52nd Street ever since. When you go to Cartier in New York, you're going to be going to that original mansion that Maisie Caldwell traded for a rare pearl necklace. Remember, Anna Dodge does that in, what, 1920? Like, pearls are the thing. I haven't found out any more about that particular pedigree of necklace, but again, we're here for Clarendon Court. We're here with Maisie. Okay, let's see. She's traded the necklace. Her second husband, Morton Plant, will pass away in 1918, just the year after she trades the house for the necklace. When Morton passes away, he will leave his younger wife, widow now, Maisie, with $50 million. It is the following year, 1919, that Maisie takes her third husband, William Hayward. Now, Colonel William Hayward, United States District Attorney for the Southern Region of New York, he's won considerable recognition for all of his prohibition prosecutions. William Hayward was the commander of the Harlem Hellfighters during World War I. He's a big deal dude. Another little odd connection here. I want to bring it in because it, oh gosh, it all is coming around. Maisie Caldwell's son by her first marriage, Philip Morgan Manwaring. He will take on a fourth last name, that name of Plant, from her second husband. Philip Morgan Manwaring Plant is also the guy that the term Playboy was invented for. That moniker of fame comes around the time of Philip Morgan Manwaring Plant's divorce from Constance Bennett, one of the infamous three Bennett sisters. Constance has a sister. Her name is Joan Bennett, who is the star of Dark Shadows. She plays Elizabeth Collins Stoddard, who is the mother of Victoria Winters, played by Alexandra Isles. I mean, for all my trashy divorces, people, I am getting to Joan Bennett this week. Oh my God. It's just all too much. I can't even. Okay. Okay. Clarendon Court. Here we are. Maisie Caldwell, William Hayward. They acquire Clarendon Court, 1930. They'll rename it and remodel. Maisie's going to add an art gallery where the service wing used to be to hold her collection of fine art, most of which now is housed in the Frick Collection. So much art. May and William are happy at Clarendon Court. Again, they host Leland's wedding in 1936. William Hayward, the colonel, dies in 1944. 
And Maisie is, you know, a widow. She's a little sad. She's going to manage to stay single for a hot minute, like a hot decade of minutes. She will marry again 10 years later in 1954 to a successful financier named John Edward Rovinsky. Maisie meets Rovinsky playing poker down in the wintertime season in Palm Beach. Two years after this marriage, Maisie Codwell does pass away in 1956, leaving her fourth husband, Clarendon Court, and her fortune, of which about $4 million remains. 1956, it's a big year for Clarendon Court. In 1956, a little movie that you may have heard of was filmed at Clarendon Court. This film is called High Society, starring Grace Kelly, Bing Crosby, and Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra, 1956, back in the days when he and Dominic Dunn got along, long before that Daisy feud. High Society is a musical remake of the Philadelphia story by Philip Berry. Both good movies, uh, whether you like the original Philadelphia story or High Society. The lady in focus for Philadelphia story, High Society, the heroine, the anti-hero, you can decide. Her name in the script, in the, in the story, is called Tracy Samantha Lord. But I want to give you all a little inside scoop. Tracy Samantha Lord is based on a real-life Philadelphia heiress whose name is Helen Hope Montgomery. Helen Hope Montgomery is better known by her married name of Hope Scott. Vanity Fair dubs Hope as the, quote, unofficial queen of Philadelphia's wasp oligarchy, unquote. As a debutante, (laughs) Helen Hope Montgomery is legend. She turns down four proposals before accepting one from Edgar Scott, whom she marries at the tender age of 19. So the next time you watch Philadelphia Story or High Society, know that The lady that inspires Tracy Samantha Lord really is a real-life heiress, Helen Hope Montgomery Scott. The Philadelphia Story, as a film, was released in 1940. That original version starred Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn, and James Stewart. It was directed by George Cukor. Hollywood does love a remake, and 16 years later, by 1956, it's time for High Society. But this time, the remake is a musical with music provided by delightful, witty, lovely, bemusing, God, I got a soft spot for this guy, Cole Porter. He's just simply incredible. Filming of High Society takes place from January to March in 1956 in and around Clarendon Court, with the film High Society being released in July of that same year. It is super imperative to finish filming High Society with a quickness by April, as in April 1956, Grace Kelly does become the bride of Prince Rainier of Monaco. And so it goes. The spiderwebs, y'all. High Society was Grace Kelly's final film before she becomes Princess of Monaco. 
and she will wear her engagement ring from Prince Rainier from Cartier in the filming of High Society. Little creeps here, y'all. Just Hollywood, y'all. Grace Kelly, during filming for High Society, is the tender age of 26. Frank Sinatra is 40. Bing Crosby is 53. High Society is quite a delightful film. Who can argue with Grace Kelly and Cole Porter? Not me. 1956, big deal, Clarendon Court. You have seen it in film in the movie High Society. If you ever want to go check that out. But it is, right, after May passes, <laughs> in 1954, after this, Rovinsky, her fourth husband, is going to donate a pretty large chunk of cash, $175,000, to the city of Newport to build a park in his late wife's honor. Just, a, you know, a nice little park in Newport. But the thing that Rovinsky does is he donates the money in May's honor but he wants the park called Ravinsky Park after him. So, right? There's that. Ravinsky, goodness, passes away 14 years later after this high society nonsense. He passes away in 1970, leaving his daughter, Jane Ewing Ravinsky, to sell the home to new owners, the ones that are probably more familiar to us all, Sonny and Klaus von Bülow. And Clarendon Court looks fantastic to Sonny Von Bulow as an investment property. Like, she's got a home. She's got a home in New York on Fifth Avenue, like New York City. But Sonny's mama, Annie Laurie Aitken, just moved to Newport right before this. Annie Laurie's home, the one that she buys, is just a little further south. It's called Shop Soleil. That's coming in a future Newport episode. It really does all connect. Sonny's mom buys a home in Newport. Sonny's like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea for me too. She finds the nearest available home close to her mom. They're like a, psh, a few hundred meters away from each other. Kind of nice. 1970, Ravinsky's daughter. Here, Von Bulos take the home. Sonny and Klaus live here for a good decade before his crimes begin in 1979 and 1980, Klaus's attempted murders, plural, leave Sonny Von Bülow in an irreversible coma and Clarendon Court sitting in Newport. Sonny Von Bülow's story is coming, but let's wrap up here with what happens to the home. Let's complete the journey of Clarendon Court so far. <laughs> Clarendon Court in 1998, this is many, many years after Klaus was acquitted in that second trial. That happens in 1985. So the home sits. Sonny's children use the home. The home will be sold in 1998 by Sonny's kids and friends acting on Sonny's behalf. The home is sold to Patricia and Glenn Randall. Glenn Randall's an art dealer from Washington, D.C. The Randalls live in the home from 1998 to 2010. In 2010, Patricia passes away, and Glenn will put Clarendon Court on the market for $17.8 million. This home is finally sold two years later in 2012 for less than that, $13.1 million. 
to this guy named Paul G. Royth. He is the president of Heath Properties. He does a lot of restaurants in Boston. He owns the 15 Beacon Hotel, too. In September of 2021, just two years ago, Clarendon Court, the home now was 7.2 acres, best views on Newport, showplace of Bellevue Avenue. Two years ago, this home sells again for $30 million to Mark Walter. Mark Walter is the CEO of Guggenheim Partners, His job is supervising about $310 billion in assets. Mark Walter is also the chairman of the LA Dodgers. He is listed as the 608th wealthiest person on the planet with a net worth of $5.4 billion. So that $30 million for Clarendon Court, I think, was a real steal. Little fun fact here, this $30 million price tag on Clarendon Court smashes the record previously set for a sale of a home in the state of Rhode Island. Who was that previous record holder? Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift got that record in 2013 when she buys a home called Holiday House, once owned by Rebecca Harkness. Remember, Rebecca Harkness married into the Standard Oil money. Rebecca Harkness's story is coming so, so soon. And the home of that story, it's just all too connectedly wonderful. But Taylor Swift had the highest record with Holiday House for $17.75 million in 2013 until the $30 million Clarendon Court sale in 2021. Holy cats, I think that is Clarendon Court. In our next main feed episode, we are going to be getting to the crimes, again, plural, that happened inside of Clarendon Court. Stay tuned for your next main feed episode when we resume with our heiress tour, getting into the case of Sonny Von Bulow. Friends, I can't tell you how grateful I am for you. Thank you for your support and for tuning in, for all your awesome comments, for simply being the best. No amount of gratitude is ever enough. I value and appreciate y'all more than you know. Thanks for always being awesome. And until we meet again, you know I want you to stay curious and keep on investigating. Big love, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.